Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm the Mayfair Road Campus Pastor. I'm also one of the teaching pastors. And I'm glad you're here today. We're in the letter to the Galatians. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to share, uh, I, I uh, though I look incredibly young, uh, when I was in high school, it was before the invention of the iPhone. So not everyone had a cell phone, only like the 1% uh, uh, had cell phones in high school, and even then all they were doing was playing snake because not everyone had a cell phone. But the way we would communicate with each other in school is this archaic thing called letter writing, right? Like we were in the war, like, dearest Abigail, the winter was long, you know. Um, but, but like we would write letters to one another. But I don't know if this was true in your school, but in my school, the girls were really extra with the way they would do their letters. They would fold these things in the most ornate, like beautiful, like pieces of art, right? Like I, I remember I dated this girl, in, in, in high school, and she would pass me notes, and straight up, she studied origami. Like, that junk was, um, like, I felt uncomfortable opening it, because I felt like I was ruining something. She would fold it in such a way, like, it would, like, have to unlock or something. Like, it was, it was wild. And then, and then uh, she would use multiple colored pens and gel pens and, and glitter. She would, like, draw stuff on it. It was so sweet, and I was such a boy about it. Like, I would write her a note and, like, fold it twice barely and hand it to her. You know what I'm saying? Um, but one day, what she handed me, I knew would change everything. Because what she handed me, I knew there was something wrong from the moment I received this letter. First off, uh, the first clue was that it was just folded like she was folding a towel. Just like multiple rectangles. There's no romance in that kind of fold, right? There's nothing in that. And then she only used black ink. You know, because it's the same color as her heart. Because she broke up with me in that letter, right? It was the worst letter I've ever received. It was terrible. I knew something was wrong from the moment I received that letter. Well, the letter to the Galatians is unlike anything Paul's written. Unlike all the other letters, this is a very different kind of letter. The letter to the Galatians was written around um, the late 40s AD, and unlike the other letters, Paul's not writing to a city, uh, a specific church in a city, but he's writing to a region. Galatia was this uh, region, it's a Roman province of mostly Gentiles, which means they're not Jewish, uh, in the southern part of what we know as Turkey today. And, and, and so Paul is writing to this region and probably expects this letter to be passed around to, to multiple churches. But also, unlike all of other Paul's letters in the New Testament, he's angry. Like, he is mad this entire letter. Like, let me read to you chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who... Uh, called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So before we dive into Paul's angriest letter in the New Testament, uh, I, I feel like the, the, the letter of Galatians kind of split up into three even sections. And his first section, the first two chapters, I would label as the gospel defined. The gospel defined, all right? So let me tell you about the drama that's happening here in this letter. So there has been tension between Jews and Gentiles ever since the beginning, ever since God called out Abraham. And many Jews believed that Gentiles were outside the will of God. Like there was no mercy for anyone who wasn't ethnically Jewish. 
And so some Jews would even say that the reason why God made Gentiles is so it could be the fuel for the flames of hell. Well, that's a heavy statement. Like, let's call it for what it is. This is racism, right? Racism is, is whenever you think that you, your, your ethnicity or your race is superior to everyone else and you hate them, that's racism. And what the Jews were doing towards Gentiles, basically anyone who isn't Jewish, is, is unadulterated racism. But then Jesus shows up. And his message reaches the Jews first, and they get saved, but it also is reaching the Gentiles. People who aren't Jewish are becoming Christians, are becoming saved. And so Jesus later in Acts chapter 9 goes to Paul. Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, and Jesus commissions Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. His, his number one job is to be a missionary and go to where the Gentiles are and share the good news of the gospel. What is the gospel, right? The good news story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus where Christ takes away our sins and he makes us right before the Father. And so he begins to go on these missionary journeys and sharing the gospel. One of the places he goes to is Galatia. Now, here's the really sketchy part that's happening along the way. Everywhere Paul goes, there's this group of false teachers, these Jewish Christians, who are going after Paul leaves the city or leaves the region. He would, they, these false teachers would go in, swoop in, and they would say, oh, Paul was here? Oh, that's cool. Oh, you guys just got saved? That's wonderful. But did Paul remind you that you have to be circumcised and follow the, uh, the Old Testament laws? You have to be Jewish first? Did he remind you of that? Oh, no, he didn't? <laughs> Figures. Like, they would refer to Paul kind of like a JV apostle because Jesus came to Paul after, later than the other apostles. And, and, and they would basically undermine Paul's message and authority trying to convince the Gentiles that they need to be Jewish before they could actually be saved. This is the Judaizers. This is the circumcision party. And so Paul is mad. He is mad because not only are these false teachers undermining his authority, they're undermining the gospel, and there's people who are believing it. There's people who are converting to this false gospel. So chapter 1, verse 6 again, let's read it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So these false teachers are leading the, leading the Galatian church to believe a false gospel. And Paul wants to emphasize that there is no other gospel. And whatever other gospel they're trying to tell you, that it needs to be rejected, that we shouldn't even entertain it. And so Paul says that even if he, Paul, were to show up later and preach a different gospel, that they should, they should just like ignore him. They should reject his message. And if it were possible for an angel from heaven to come to earth and tell you a gospel that's contrary to the gospel of Christ, that we should reject that message too. What, what Paul is trying to say here is truth outranks credentials. Truth outranks credentials. It doesn't matter how nice or charismatic they are. It doesn't matter if they've written a lot of books or they're really famous. If a teacher or a preacher or whatever is promoting a different gospel, you are to reject their influence in your life. And I'm serious. 
Like if I were to ever come on the stage and say something wild like, believe in Jesus, but also make sure you put out good energy into the universe because the universe wants to reward you, I, um, block me on Instagram. Like for real. Like if I ever come up here and say something like, believe in Jesus and you'll never get sick and you'll be rich, I hope Epicus fires me because that's a false gospel. Reject my influence if I ever say anything wild like that. Paul is using this word accursed. He uses that word twice, and it's a heavy word. That Greek word is the word anathema. And so at minimum, what Paul is saying here is that uh, you ought to separate from these false teachers and make sure they have no influence in your life. If, If someone's sharing a false gospel to you, cut them off out of your life from having influence to you. At maximum, what Paul is saying is that there is a special type of wrath from God that's going to be poured out on these people who are preaching a false gospel and are drawing people away from the true gospel of Christ. This is, he's not mincing words here. He knows that what these false teachers are promoting is toxic and destructive. So he spends the first two chapters of Galatians basically defending his apostleship, showing the receipts that his message of the gospel is the same message that's been co-signed by Peter, James, and John. His gospel is so clear that he even talks about how he has to call out Peter one time because Peter was being a hypocrite and kind of like catering to the false teachers. And so these false teachers are saying that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they have to become Jewish first, and follow the law to be truly saved. And Paul is saying, that makes no sense because your Jewishness has nothing to do with it. Chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is saying, yo, I am a Jew, and even I know that my own Jewishness doesn't make me right before God. What makes me right before God is faith alone in Jesus Christ. So if Jews are made right by their faith in Jesus, why would it be any different for the Gentiles? When we talk about the word justification or being justified, what it means is to be, to be declared right before God. So, in other words, before you put your faith in Jesus, when God sees you, he sees your sin. And because he sees your sin, all you deserve is his wrath, the punishment against sin. But when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus takes your sin from you and he gives you his righteousness. What makes Jesus right before God, he gives that to you. So when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfect life of Jesus on you and therefore he adopts you into his family like you're his children. Being justified before God, being right before God, has nothing to do with your works or earning God's favor by your obedience. It has to do with representation. You being in Jesus and Jesus representing you to God. Let's, Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's no longer sinful Frank that God sees when he sees me, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
He is saying that if you could save yourself, if it was about your good works, about your obedience, then Jesus died for nothing. So Paul is angry, right? He gets to chapter 3, verse 1, and he says this. He starts off chapter 3 by saying this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? There's a translation of the Bible that's called the J.B. Phillips translation. And sometimes I read it when I want to laugh. He says this. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. I love it. Dear idiots is the sweetest slam you could ever do, right? He is mad because for Paul, the idea as a Christian to follow the law is so dumb that the only way that can make sense if literal witches were like, like casting a spell over you. Like it makes no sense to him. So if the first section is the gospel defended, chapter 3 and 4 I would label the gospel defined. The gospel defined. Paul tells us why going back to the law is silly in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. I think I have a slide for that. Um, That's every single law found in the Old Testament. I made Asher, communications director, make sure all of it is on one screen because I want it to feel overwhelming. It's like size five font. It makes, it's so much stuff, I want it to feel overwhelming because that's the point that Paul is trying to make here. You can't do all of that. You can't fulfill all 613 laws in the Old Testament. In fact, Deuteronomy says that unless you do them all perfectly, you're going to continue to fail. And Paul knows that. And that's why he thinks this is crazy. So Paul points out in chapter 3, a few verses later, he says, you think you can follow the law, but don't you remember that Abraham was made right before God? And he came on the scene 430 years before the law. And, And what made Abraham right with God wasn't his obedience to the law. It was because of his faith. The, the, the law didn't exist. It was Abraham's faith that made Abraham right with God. So if Abraham, like the OG patriarch of our faith, if he is right with God because of faith, why would it be any different for anyone else? So, so a logical question that comes up when you start trying to dissect this is then, why did God give us the law in the first place? That's Verse 19, it says, why then the law? If the law doesn't exist to save us, then why did God give it to us? Well, there's two important reasons why we have the law. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. So the law has two functions. The first function is that the law is an amplifier. The law is an amplifier. So there's, there's two electric guitars over there on that platform. And, and if I were to, I know two songs on the guitar, How Great Is Our God by Chris Tomlin and a Green Day song. Um, but I, 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 here, here's what I know about, about guitars. Is if I were to grab that guitar and play it for you, if we were really quiet, you might be able to hear it. But bling, 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 because it was just like metal strings, right? But if I plug in the guitar to the pedals and the pedals that are plugged into the amplifier that's plugged into the PA system, and we turn up the gain and turn up the low end, we would not only hear the guitar notes, but we would feel the guitar notes because it's been amplified. The law amplifies how sinful we are. Romans 3.20 says, uh, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law amplifies how sinful we really are, 
and the amplification should reveal to us how desperately we need a Savior. The law is amplifier. The second function of this is that the law is a nanny. The law is a nanny. So, verse 24 of chapter 3, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So, so here in the English Standard Version, they, they use the word guardian. In the King James Version, they use the word tutor. I think a better word is the word nanny. My mom was a nanny for a little boy and a little girl, and, and she would sometimes have to take me with her as she nannies these, these kids. And there's three things that I've noticed that nannies do, I think, that apply here. One, nannies are to be an extension of the parents, right? Nannies uh, might cook, they might clean, they might help teach the kids a special skill or lesson. Like my mom taught those kids Spanish um, as a part of her nannying, right? They, they would be an extension of the parents. The second thing is that nannies protect the kids. Like, when my mom started nannying these kids, I was 15, but in her car, she installed two car seats, even though I was her only child, but she had those car seats because when she drove those kids around, she, her job was to protect those kids, and, and that's why we had those car seats, and the nannies protect kids. And the third is, nannies are temporary. They're not there to replace the parents. They're there to be there until the parents come back home. So the law was a nanny for Israel. The law taught God's people not only how sinful they were, but how perfect God is and the type of sacrifice that was needed that Jesus was going to do. The law protected God's people. It, it, it helped us from drifting too far into our sins. It gave us a sandbox to say, hey, here are the boundaries. Don't jump out of them because it could be really bad for you. And the law was temporary. We just read it in verse 24. The law was a guardian until Christ came. The law was always meant to be a temporary buffer until Jesus showed up. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. There's no more need for a nanny anymore. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, when Paul, what Paul is saying here in verse 28 is that whether, whether it's racial, social differences, or gender differences, everyone gets saved the same way. It's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's no extra loopholes for anyone. It is all through faith alone in Jesus. Regardless of your ethnicity or race, regardless of your social or economic background, it is still only through faith alone in Jesus. Now, when Paul says that there is no male or female, he's not saying that genders aren't a thing. That would be ignoring all of Scripture where it talks about the distinctions of genders. It would also be to ignore all of Paul's commands about the distinctions between the genders. What Paul is saying is that there's no distinction in how males or females get to God, how they get saved. It's by faith alone in Jesus. One clear message in the letter of the Galatians is that Christ is building a multi-ethnic church um, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Whether, whether, whatever earthly divisions that we tend to split up over here it is irrelevant in heaven. I've made this comment before, and I'll always say it. If, if you are racist or prejudiced against people because of their skin color or ethnicity, you're going to dislike heaven, right? 
Like, because when you find me in glory, I'm going to be over at the south side of the kingdom. And I'm going to be dancing to my Latino worship, eating my arroz con pollo y platanos, and we're going to be loud for no reason, okay? Because heaven is going to be filled with all kinds of people. Because Jesus gave his life for a beautifully multi-ethnic, multicultural bride. And one of the reasons why faith alone is so important, because people like me, people who are Latino, people who are, have different ethnicities and races, have the same access to God as everyone else through faith alone in Jesus Christ. This is so important. Paul defends the gospel. He defines the gospel. But as he's doing this, there's a big issue that we have to confront ourselves with. Because we can hear the Judaizers already saying this, and we hear people say this right now. They'll say, Frank, you can't talk about a grace alone that's only by faith because if you do that, people will buy into this like easy believism stuff and they'll just do whatever they want. If it's only by grace, what's stopping people from sleeping around and getting drunk and just living recklessly? You have to give them rules. You have to give them boundaries. And I hear that and that's why Paul wrote chapter 5 and 6. This is the section I would call the gospel applied. The gospel applied. Let me give you this illustration to explain two very big errors that you can fall into as a Christian. Imagine there was a river with, with, with two parallel rivers right by each other from earth to heaven. And one river is legalism. And the other river is what I would call licentiousness. Licentiousness. And these two rivers are rivers that we sometimes fall into if we're not careful as we're on our path to heaven. Legalism believes that your, your good works or obedience to God affects your salvation. So legalism is saying Jesus plus something equals what makes you a Christian, right? So the most common form of legalism that I, I see almost every single week is the idea that in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and also be baptized. Like, like that's legalism because even though every believer ought to be baptized, the, the baptism doesn't save you. The Bible says that baptism, though it's, it's, it's something that you should, every Christian should do, it's not a requirement for salvation. Another thing I've seen that Christians say or some people say is that um, in order to be a Christian, you should be saved, but you should also never drink alcohol. Now, some of y'all should never drink alcohol. Like, if you have a problem getting drunk, you shouldn't be drinking at all. But the Bible doesn't say that drinking is bad. It says that drunkenness is a sin. Legalism is at, it's going above the requirements of Scripture. Legalism is saying it's not faith alone can't save you. I have to do something to add to it. That's legalism. Now, licentiousness is to live with no morals, no boundaries, and living by your own lusts and desires. Licentiousness believes that since God is gracious towards our sin, then we can do whatever we want. Sleep around, drink uh, gamble your money away, get yours before they get theirs, like do whatever what feels right with you, and, and if anyone doesn't like it, forget about them. Like it doesn't matter, just do what you want. It's, it's, it's kind of this base selfishness that ignores all rules and morality. The river of legalism at first looks very clean and clear, but when you get in it, you realize it, that it's endlessly deep and the current is way too strong. 
You get crushed and killed by the rapids of legalism because you are not strong enough to keep up with the current in that river. The river of licentiousness seems calm and peaceful, but the water is poisoned with filth. You, you can be in the water for a little bit, but you end up dying from the contaminated water from the inside out. This is why Paul is mad. Because both rivers will kill you. You will never reach heaven in either one of them because one is impossible to keep up with his demands and the other one is destroying you and you don't even realize it. But spanning over both of those rivers is a bridge. And that bridge is the gospel of Jesus. A bridge that sets us free from the slavery of legalism and the lie of licentiousness. And Paul spends chapter 5 and 6 explaining all about this beautiful gospel of Jesus that is not, this middle row that's not legalism or licentiousness. Chapter 5 verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the opposite of legalism is not licentiousness. Those two things are, the, are just two sides of the same coin. The opposite of legalism and licentiousness is freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is the freedom to truly love God and to love others. Living in grace doesn't make you become more indulgent and act wild. Living in grace enables you to love and serve all others well. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Legalism and licentiousness are both self-centered perspectives on how you should live. Legalism says, oh, it's about me because it's my works and my obedience that makes God happy with me. Licentiousness is just as selfish because it says, because God has shown me grace, I can do whatever I want, even if it hurts people, even if it offends people. I'm just going to do whatever my desires and my lusts are. Both are arrogantly selfish. And verse 16 says that there's a war within you between your flesh and the spirit. Every time the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about the, the old nature that you have that's tied to the sin of Adam. That rebellious kind of sinful part of you that wants to continue to rebel and sin. But when you put your faith in Jesus, you were a new creation. And in that new creation, God gives you something to be able to live this life for him, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that within us, the spirit and our flesh are at war with each other. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're a Christian, for like any amount of time, you've experienced this before. You know what it is to have that kind of tug to, to do what is right, knowing what honors God, and that tug to, to live selfishly and sinfully in your flesh. There's that tug inside you and that fight, and you, are, you feel like you have to make war within you to, to try to figure out what the right thing is. The good news is that Paul gives us a very long list of what the wrong thing is. He says in verse 19 what, the, what gratifying the flesh looks like. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, <gasps> dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says he, there's, there's still more to the list. These are just the ones that the Galatians get affected by. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what living in the flesh looks like. 
But when you juxtapose it to the fruit of the Spirit, you see the stark difference. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Florida, um, people had orange trees or tangerine trees in their yard. And I, I remember just walking to school and being able to just grab an orange or grab a tangerine on the way to school because they were just everywhere. And one thing I noticed is this, is that a, a, a tree ain't got to do much to produce fruit. Like, it just has to be a tree. Like, if it's a tree being a tree, trees get the fruit out, right? Like, 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 like they just have to stay rooted in the ground. I've never seen a tree stress before. Like, I've never seen a tree, like, like, sweat to get fruit out. Like, I've never seen a constipated tree, you know what I'm saying? Like, trees just make fruit by nature of just being a tree. As long as it remains rooted in the ground being a tree, it will produce fruit. We don't work for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit does the work for us. All you got to do is stay connected. You want to be, you want to have more peace in your life. You want to be more loving, more faithful, more self-controlled. Abide in Jesus. Stay connected to the vine. Fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus, and the fruit will just show up. Right? Reading your Bible, worshiping him, spending time in prayer, being in godly community. The more you abide in Jesus, the Spirit will continue to produce the fruit in your life that you need to walk in the Spirit. Uh, when, when you abide in Jesus, you don't want to jump into the river of legalism. You also don't want to jump into the river of licentiousness uh, be, because the Spirit is causing you to fulfill the law perfectly by loving him and loving others. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 1. And I love this passage. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If you want to know if you're swimming in the river of legalism or licentiousness, read this verse a couple times. Because legalism, when it sees someone fall in sin, if it sees another Christian fall into sin, legalism points the finger and says, look, look at what's wrong with you. You're never good enough. You always break the rules. Why can't you follow the rules? Why do you keep messing up? You don't belong here. That's what legalism says to someone who falls into sin. Licentiousness sees a brother fall into sin, and they say, oh, you sinned? It's okay. In fact, it's not even that big of a deal. In fact, God forgave us anyway, so why don't we just keep doing it? In fact, let me show you new ways of doing this same sin. Licentiousness does the opposite of what legalism does. But a person who walks in the Spirit, who's living by grace, when they see a Christian fall into sin, they have their arms wide open. And they say, I, I know you messed up, and that's not who you are. And I understand, because I've been there too. Now let me help you get back up, and let me restore you. And I got your back, and I hope you got mine. Legalism loves to condemn licentiousness loves to enable, but grace always loves to restore. Legalism loves to condemn, licentiousness loves to enable, but grace always loves to restore. I want to close with two pretty tangible things as we walk away from this, this, this amazing letter from the Galatians, to the Galatians. One, 
Uh, I have a blog post on the Hub with a summary video of the book of Galatians that's way faster and way better than mine. Uh, so, so there's that, as well as some of the uh, pictures, that the law, the rivers with the bridge, all that stuff is on the Hub, as well as a bunch of blog, vi- blog articles and videos um, about the law, legalism, grace, and more. It'd be good material if you want to kind of have more content for your small group time this week. Go to the hub.epicus.org, scroll down, you can find all that. The second thing is this. Paul starts off this letter really angry because they were deserting the gospel to something that isn't the gospel. And in this world, there are plenty of false teachers with false gospels trying to lure you away from the true gospel. And we could talk about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology. I have a, a whole bunch of podcasts and, and documentaries about cults that all began because of a perversion of the gospel. But I don't want to simply tell you what the false gospels are. I want you to know the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Because if you don't, let me explain it as simply as I can. God made everything in this world good. Everything was good. But we brought sin into this world. And sin is anything we say, think, or do that offends a holy God. Sin corrupted everything that was good, and sin brought with it death. And because God is holy and just, God must correct what we have corrupted. God must punish sin. And because we are the sinners, God must punish us. But God loves us too much. To, to send us away, to cast us away. So he provides a way so that we can be saved from his wrath. He sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve unto himself. And Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, conquering sin and death. And so God is offering to you a free gift of salvation through Jesus. And the only way we receive it is through faith alone in him. You don't earn it. You can't work for it. Faith is not a work. Faith is the channel in which grace flows to you. So put your faith in Jesus today, and you will be saved. If today is the first time you heard that message, and you put your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you. Those orange cards, those connect cards, grab it on the back. There's a place to check off that you gave your life to Jesus today. I want you to check if you want Write in big, bold letters, I put my faith in Jesus. We want to celebrate with you. Don't leave here without telling someone that you gave your life to Jesus today. Put your faith in him. If you still have questions, on the hub, all of the campus pastors from all the campuses, their email is on there. I want to encourage you. Send an email with your questions. Your campus pastor would love to answer your questions of what it looks like, what it means to put your faith in Jesus. But if you are here today and you know the gospel and you've been a Christian for a while, be watchful. Because there are false teachers trying to woo you away from the true gospel with a gospel that can never save. And remind your children, your spouse, your family, your friends, everyone you care for, remind them of the true gospel. And importantly, remind yourself every single day of this gospel. So that you remember that the grace that saved you You don't forget that so you don't fall into either of those deadly rivers, the the river of legalism, the river of licentiousness, that as you remind yourself of the gospel, you continue to walk firmly on the bridge of the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to your mercy that that, that Jesus has saved us, Lord. I, 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 I ask for forgiveness those times where I've 
been prideful to believe that my own works is what makes me right with you. I, I ask you for forgiveness for those times where I've, I've trampled over your grace and walked into the path of licentiousness. I ask you, Lord, that you remind us of the truth of your grace, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ Jesus. Lord, let your name be glorified in this church, that we be a people that believes in the God that has a tremendous amount of grace for us, and that we share with the world about that we have a, a Savior who saved us by grace alone, through faith alone. In your son's name I pray.